We'll turn now to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Last Sunday, we looked at the first chapter of this incredible book, and we talked about the fact that as the Jews were taken into captivity into Babylon, the people of Judah, it was God's work that did this. The captivity was decreed by God himself. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 through 20, which is now on the screen, we have really a summary of what happened, and I would like to read this and make a comment or two. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at the prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, that's Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. aged. God gave all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials, which is exactly what Daniel tells us in the opening verses of Daniel. Verse Verse 19. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant. So it wasn't the whole nation. It was just the remnant of the people. And uh, notice what it says. Who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power, which was approximately 70 years. Notice that. They became servants to him. And so that's really what Daniel was. He was a servant to King Nebuchadnezzar. It was God's work in taking them into captivity in the first place. And when they were there in this three years of training that these four young men had to undergo, um, Nebuchadnezzar, through his his other servants, uh, tried to eradicate their identity as God-fearing Jews and to indoctrinate them in all the ways and ideologies of the the Babylonian people. But Daniel and his friends were determined to preserve their identity, and they refused to be defiled. And so God was faithful to them, and God used them in incredible ways. That brings us now to chapter 2. Now, as we start chapter 2, keep this in mind. In the mind of the Babylonians at this point in time, they have just triumphed over Judah. They've sacked the nation, destroyed its temple, taken away all of the treasures out of the temple and out of the king of Judah's palace. They have conquered other nations as well. But in their minds, the God of the Jews is inferior to their gods because their gods, the Babylonian gods, have led them successfully in destroying Judah. The God of the Jews is now disgraced in their minds. He is inferior to our gods, they were saying. Unable to deliver them. Powerless before us because we are worshipers of the true gods. Now what we have here in Daniel chapter 2, actually in the whole book of Daniel, is a contest. We might call it a battle. But it's a contest. It's It's a power encounter that is taking place between Yahweh and the gods of the Babylonians. Between false gods of human invention and between the one true and living God who is the creator of all things. 
Now, the battle is alluded to in chapter one when Daniel and and the young men say, we will not defile ourselves with the king's food, and they commit themselves to eating vegetables alone, and God makes them stronger than all the others who were bowing down to the Babylonian gods and eating all of the king's food. They were greater in intellect, they were greater in strength than all who bowed down. So there's a little bit of the contest, a little bit of the battle that is there, but at this point in time, Nebuchadnezzar is just simply aware that he has four remarkably able young Jewish men who are about to enter his service. And what we're about to see now is that something is going to change. Because in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, he just thinks they're outstanding intellectual young men, but he does not know the reason why they are so apt, why they have such great understanding of things. And chapter 2 brings about a change now. Nebuchadnezzar is about to discover that there is a source of knowledge and wisdom that exists that does not exist in the wise men of his nation that these wise men, these astrologers, these magicians, they, they have no access to this wisdom. But Daniel does. The key word in the passage is wisdom. You'll you'll find it here several times. It's all through the passage. The words wise men are used many times, and wise men is just simply a summary of the the men that are mentioned in verse 2. Magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, the, the overarching umbrella is magi or wise men. And there's so much that is said here about God himself and how wise God is and the wisdom that is given to Daniel because he worships the one true and living God. So this brings us now to the dream or the dreams of the king. Verse 1, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Notice it's plural. This was a recurring dream. And you can imagine what was going on. The next part of the verse says, his mind was troubled and he could not sleep. And night after night after night, this dream kept coming back to him. Now notice at this point, we are not told what the content of the dream is. That'll come later in the passage when Daniel interprets the dream. All we're told here is that Nebuchadnezzar is deeply troubled. Couldn't sleep. Sleepless nights. We, we have all had dreams, and we probably, I had dreams last night. I can't remember what I dreamed, but I woke up in the middle of the night to use the washroom, and I knew that I, would, I had been dreaming. By the way, the dream did not continue, contribute to me getting up, but I did have dreams. Some of us have nightmares. They frighten us. They wake us up. Some of us have had the experience of waking up in a sweat. I can remember as a child, I had this recurring dream of a, a monster that was chasing me. And I can remember being in the track and field team as a little, a little kid, and I was very fast. Hard to believe now, but I was. I was very fast. And I prided myself in how fast I could run, but it felt as though I was wearing lead shoes as this monster came after me. It was Sigmund Freud who did the first comprehensive study of dreams, and this led to the whole um, research of psychoanalysis. And today, it's common belief that our dreams are are rooted in in repressed emotions or in profound stress or in the traumas that we experience in life. In other words, our dreams are natural. They they reveal something about our subconsciousness. They reveal something about our, our emotional state. 
And so we can explain our dreams naturally. There are natural causes as to why we dream. And therefore, we really don't attach much significance for the most part on the things that we dream. And it's interesting because as you read the commentaries about Daniel, you'll read some that are critical of, 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 of him and critical of the reliability of the story that is here. And they, they go on to say, well, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, of course. Um, and, and, and they come up with all kinds of psychotherapeutic explanations for Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Nebuchadnezzar had lived in, was living in constant fear of at best being supplanted by others, at worst being assassinated. That he was worrying about the fragility of the empire that he ruled over, that, that he wondered whether he had the political staying power to hang on. And therefore he was upset with dreams and the critics will say all these dreams were, were natural in order and they were ordinary kinds of dreams. But later, when Daniel counsels him, I want you to notice verse 28, when he counsels him about his, his dream, he says to him, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Notice what Daniel does not say. He does not say there is a God in heaven who reveals that the, the symptoms, uh, 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 that the, dream, the dreams that you're having are just symptoms of psychological distress due to anxiety. It's not what Daniel says. He says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Next line. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. This is not an ordinary dream. And Nebuchadnezzar knew it. He knew that it was supernatural in in origin, and it had the utmost importance about history and about the future. Now we know in the ancient world that people then, as people today, recognize that most dreams just simply reflect our state of mind during the day or, or whether we had too much pizza to eat the night before. But they also believed in message dreams. This was very common among the Egypt, Egypt, Egyptians. And you remember, if you were here a new number of years ago when we did our study in Exodus, that we, we see that Pharaoh had dreams. And the Egyptians believed that, that when a man or a woman dreamed, they were actually entering this, they would call it the dream world. And that this dream world was inhabited by other entities, uh, spirits, the spirits of the dead, the gods themselves. And they would, they would communicate with people in their dreams. They, they considered these dreams to be revelatory. That is, they brought revelation to people. They were from, the, from God or from the gods, but they were not ordinary dreams. Now, we know that the Bible prohibits any kind of communication with, with spirits, with spirits of the dead, like seances and fortune-telling, anything of that nature. But at the same time, Time, the Bible makes it clear that this dream world or what can happen in dreams is not mere superstition. God himself said in Numbers chapter 12, when a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. And we have this in God's word. We have in Genesis, Jacob has a vision of a, of a, of a stairway going up to heaven and, and the angels of God are ascending and descending on this stairway. There's this, there's this communication intercourse that's happening between heaven and earth. 
And Joseph, taken into captivity in Egypt, is an interpreter of dreams, and he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, and in so doing, saves the Egyptian nation during a time of great famine. We come to the New Testament writings and, and, and the New Testament opens with a young man named Joseph who, who is committed to marry a young virgin named Mary and he is troubled because she is pregnant and he knows he had nothing to do with it and an angel of the Lord appears to him. How? In a dream. In a dream. And said, Joseph, don't, take, don't hesitate to take Mary as your wife for that which is in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And here we have in Daniel 2, God speaking not to righteous men, not to God-fearing men, not to prophets, but to a pagan king. Today, many believers I know, in the times that I have counseled with people, have had dreams in which they have sensed that they have been attacked by the evil one himself in a dream. I've had those experiences myself even recently. And we hear of Muslims who who come to faith in Christ after having some kind of a dream in which Jesus reveals himself to him. One of my very dear friends, Salah Adam, who was killed in a terrorist act a number of years ago, I remember as he was investigating Christianity, a Muslim from the Sudan, and as he got closer and closer to becoming a believer in Jesus, he had a recurring dream of an imam who kept calling him back to Islam. And I remember being there on the day when Jesus appeared to him and broke the power of that curse upon him, and he followed Jesus. Now this is the reason why these ancient kings like Nebuchadnezzar had, as it says in verse two, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, because they had this ability, they they had been trained to interpret dreams, and they stood before the king. Now this dream, this dream is actually the controversy of the whole passage. It is where the contest is played out. The dream is all about a revelation of the future, but the dream creates a dilemma, the second point for the wise men, verse verse uh, three and four. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. So a simple request, King Nebuchadnezzar, please divulge to us the content of the dream, what you saw and what you heard. Please explain the details to us. We will study those details. And through our dark arts, through occultic powers, which they had developed over a period of time, they will not just study it, they will interpret the dream. Now, now it, 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 it seems like a reasonable request that they're making of the king. But the king rejects this. And he gives to them an unheard of test up to this point in time. Verse five, the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was, you gotta give me the content. And secondly, and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Now you get an idea of the kind of man Nebuchadnezzar really was. Nebuchadnezzar, 
wanted to find out, do these men really have the supernatural interpretation abilities that they claim to have? And he reasoned, if they have these supernatural powers, then they will be able to do this because they're in connection with the gods. And the gods know, and the gods will surely pass on this information to those who are devoted to the gods. In essence, Nebuchadnezzar was giving them an opportunity. They had a chance now to prove their powers. They they had a chance chance to prove the power of the gods of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't interested in, in, in speculation. He wanted supernatural disclosure. And so there's a threat that goes with this. If they're, unable to con- if they're unable to do all this, then Nebuchadnezzar will conclude that they are fake and they will be put to death for all the years that they have deceived him in the royal court. This was their dilemma. And notice the dilemma is accentuated here because they are powerless here. In verse seven, they ask him again, tell us the dream and we will interpret it. And Nebuchadnezzar gets angry at this point. And notice what he says in verse, in verse eight. I am certain that you are trying to gain time. You're stalling because you realize that this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things. You're stalling and you're conspiring, he said. And in their dilemma, they made one last effort and basically said in verse 10, King Nebuchadnezzar, what you're asking of us is completely unreasonable. The astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. And now look at verse 11, because verse 11 jumps right out. It really reveals quite a bit. Notice what they say. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. You see that? Now all of a sudden your mind ought to be hopping ahead to Jesus. The gods do not live among men. They thought, they believed, that even though the gods are there and the gods are powerful, the gods are not accessible. It is impossible for their gods to act like gods. What good is a god if you can't access that god? Now this brings us to the decree that Nebuchadnezzar brings. Verses 12 and 13, he makes it very clear. This made the king angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men. Notice that, not just those who were there in the court at that point in time, but all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for who? For Daniel and his friends to put them to death, because they're all a part of this large group of wise men in Babylon at that time. This is the context then, the context in which God is going to show his sovereignty in which his sovereignty is going to shine through. He's going to display his power. He's going to show us his wisdom. And so the decree of the king, as menacing as it is, as threatening as it is, is actually the context in which God is going to work. So we come now to Daniel's response, the intervention of of Daniel. We begin at verse 14. There was a man named Arioch who was the commander of the king's guard. And he had gone out to put to death the wise men. 
Daniel spoke to him. Notice, with wisdom. First time the word wisdom is used in this passage. He spoke to him with wisdom. Why? Because the passage is going to show us, Daniel's going to show us that he is a true wise man. And the Babylonian wise men are idiots. They're idiots. Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. You can imagine what's going on in Dan- Daniel's mind. I've, I've just come through several years ago, the, the sacking of my nation, the destruction of our temple. Our God has been has been disgraced, our people have been humiliated, and somehow I have survived this, and now I've had to go through three years of learning all this Babylonian ideology and all of the pressures to eradicate my identity as a follower of the one true and living God, and this is what's going to happen to me? Daniel goes into the king and he pleads for an opportunity to interpret the dream for himself, because he knows he might be put to death, for his friends, but also for the other wise men. This is interesting, because Daniel, while he's a part of them, he's not a part of them. These are not men who, 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 who he admires. In some ways, they are enemies of his, and, and you'll see that in chapter 3 when we get there in the coming weeks. But in verse 24, Daniel went to Ariok, whom the Lord had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. He, he's doing this on their behalf. Now, something's interesting here because, because Daniel is, is actually shown favor. He goes into the king. At this, Daniel went into the king, verse 16, asked for time. Remember, he wasn't giving the, the other wise men any time at all. But somehow this young man impressed him. And so Daniel, or Neb, Nebuchadnezzar, agrees. He shows favor to him, and he agrees to give him time. Now this brings us to the next thing, and that is the intercession of Daniel and his friends. And that's found in verse 17 through 18. Daniel goes back to his home. He explains the matter to his friends, the three men. Notice verse 18. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men. So what did they pray for? They prayed for mercy. That's just simply a way of saying that they pled with God to be faithful to his word and to deliver them. Now here's what I want you to notice here. There is a complete dependence on Daniel's part, a complete dependence on God. Now Daniel answered with wisdom and tact when he spoke to Ariok. Daniel is a wise man all on his own. In terms of his, his creativity, in terms of his intellect, he is a very, very wise man for his young age. But he is not dependent on his abilities or on his wisdom. He is dependent on Yahweh, the one true and living God. Remember this. The degree to which you practice prayer rede- reveals the depth of your dependence on God. God answers in verse 19. And during the night, the, the, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, and notice the references to wisdom. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power on is his. Verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. Verse 23, I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have 
made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Now, beginning at verse 24 and, fo- and, fo- and following, we have the interpretation that Daniel gives. And what I want you to notice here is that in verses 27 through 30, Daniel does not make this about himself and the wise men. He makes it about the God and the gods. Verse 27, Daniel replied, he comes into the presence of the king, and the king asks him, are you able to interpret the dream? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But, I can. No, that's not what he says. He says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on the bed are these. And notice what he says. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come and the revealer of mysteries. That's God. It's all about God. The revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men. It's not about Daniel. It's not about the wise men. It's about God and the Babylonian gods. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. So beginning at verse 31 to verse 35, Daniel recites the dream. Let me give you a summary of it. Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue, tall, imposing, made out of four different metals. The head was made out of gold. The the chest and the arms were made out of silver. The, The lower torso and the thighs were made out of bronze. And the rest of the legs were made out of iron and clay. He also sees in this dream that there is a small rock, as it were, that is, that is cut out, and it says, not by human hands. You find that, um, not by human hands. That is found in verse 34. A rock that is cut out, but not by human hands. And this little rock that is not cut out by human hands strikes this statue in its lower legs, in its feet. And because the the feet are made out of iron and clay, the whole statue collapses. And then the wind comes. After After it's been shattered into all these pieces, the wind comes and blows away all of these various pieces. Now let me just run through what, these, what, what the four parts of the statue actually are. We're, we're going to deal with this in the coming weeks. But the first part, the head of gold, is Babylon itself. If you notice verse 36, Daniel says to the king, You are that head of gold. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold. The second is the next empire that will come in verse 39. In verse 39, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours, represented by silver. This is the Medo-Persian Empire, which defeats the Babylonians after this 70-year captivity, and the Medo-Persians take over. Then in verse 39, he says, next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. 
and we believe this to be the empire of Greece or the Macedonian M- M- empire under Alexander the Great. And when we get to chapter eight, we're gonna come into that period of, his, of history when Alexander the Great conquers the whole world. Then the fourth one is found in verse 40. It is a kingdom made out of iron and clay. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. And this is the kingdom or the empire of Rome, the empire that has dominated the world at the time when Jesus, the Messiah, the rock that is cut out from the stone, not by human hands, comes on the scene and he shatters all the kingdoms of the world and he establishes an eternal kingdom that will never fade away. Now, there you have an overview of Daniel chapter two. So what in the world is all this about for us? To put it in another way, what does Daniel want the readers of his letter, his book to understand? What does Daniel not just want the Jews in his day to understand, but what does Daniel want you and I today to know and to understand from this passage? Now, it is at this point that those of you who are in life groups, life group leaders, you you want to listen carefully at this point in time because these are the things that you need to discuss in your groups. These are the takeaway points of how we apply what Scripture says to our lives in our everyday setting. For family units that are here, these are the kinds of things you can discuss at your lunch table today. Now, there are four things that Daniel wants us to know, and these four things I'm just gonna touch on them today, but they're gonna keep coming up through this series because these four things are the recurring themes that we find throughout the book of Daniel. What Daniel wants us to know, first of all, about God. Now there's much to say about God in this passage. Obviously, God shows his power and grace to Daniel and that he favors, he shows favor to him through Nebuchadnezzar because Daniel gets access to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel gets time which the other wise men were not able to get. But in the passage, there's a contrast several times. A contrast between the false and the true. The, the magi claim that, that only, God, only the gods can give the answer, but they don't dwell among men which implies that they have no faith. They have no faith that it will happen. They have no faith that the gods can can be communicated with to give them the answer that they need. By contrast, in chapter 2, verse 20, Daniel says wisdom and power are gods. They belong to God. Nebuchadnezzar believes that the wise men are waiting, as it were, until the times will change. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. He says, I am certain that you are trying to gain time, verse eight, because you realize that this is what I firmly decided. Verse nine, if you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping, hoping what? Hoping the situation will change. Hoping the time will change. That's what he's saying. A time when they can topple Nebuchadnezzar and get him off of his throne because he threatens their lives. In contrast, Daniel just simply prays and in verse 21 he says, he, that is God, changes the times and the seasons. There's no no need for men to manipulate this to make it happen. God is the one who changes times 
and seasons. And then the wise men are operating with their, with their dark, dark arts, with the occultic powers that they claim they have. And what does Daniel do? You see, Daniel had been trained in all of that spiritual garbage. He learned the literature and the language of the Babylonians. He had been subject to all of that occultic teaching. What does Daniel do? Does he rely on that? No. Verse 21, he simply prays. He prays to the God of heaven. Daniel prays. He does not use any occultic powers, but he trusts in the one true and living God. Listen, friends, the pretensions of the Babylonian gods and all of their wisdom is completely unmasked because Daniel's God, get this, Daniel's God, your God and my God is the only wise God. Amen. Hallelujah. Now it's important that we cling to this truth because God knows what is, in, what is in the darkness. He knows the paths that we tread. He sees into the dark places. Verse 22, he knows what lies in darkness and he's able to shine his light. Light dwells with him. He is the only wise God. This means that you and I can stake our lives on the fact that God is greater than all of the Babylonian enemies of God, that God is greater than all of his enemies today, that God is greater than Nebuchadnezzar, even though Nebuchadnezzar ruled the whole world, that God is greater than the wise men and who claim to understand mysteries. Friends, God is greater than the illness you face, the losses you've undergone, the depression that plagues you, the, the fear that robs you of your joy, the doubt that perplexes your heart, and all of the problems that you have in life. God is greater. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are, we are surrounded today by the, by the wisdom of the world. We are being catechized perpetually by the wisdom of the world. Wisdom about religion, wisdom about sexuality, wisdom about politics. All the gods are equal, all religions are really the same. Just different ways of getting to God. Doesn't matter what you call God, we're all going to the same place. You can choose your sexuality. There are more than two genders that God has created. The government is your celestial, eternal sugar daddy, your God. Religious wisdom, moral wisdom, secular wisdom that, that promises you power and success through applying certain strategies in business and relationships. And all of this wisdom presents itself with its impressive credentials. There are always doctors or PhDs on the end of every philosophy. Our world has its own wise men. And it looks all so very outwardly impressive. But inwardly, listen, listen, inwardly, it is empty. It is empty. The root of the world's wisdom is an empty sham. Only God's wisdom is the true insight or the true source of insight for skillful living. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Amen. What Daniel wants us to know about God. Secondly, what Daniel wants us to know about prayer. 
Now, certainly God is tied to prayer because prayer is made to God. So this really is an elaboration, a little bit more on God himself, but I want to focus just on the act of praying itself because in prayer, or in Daniel, prayer occupies a major place. Read Daniel through it and you'll see Daniel records his prayers. Several prayers are here and they're, they're beautiful prayers. They're prayers that magnify the glory of God. Uh, and 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 Daniel's habit in prayer, that, that's here. It's, it's found here in chap, chapter two. It becomes more accentuated as you read Daniel through. So the, the power of prayer, the, the practice of prayer, it, it's, it's a major thread through all of the book. And here it is the turning point in this story. It's the turning point that removes the dilemma, as it were, of the wise men. In verses 17 through 19, we read that they prayed. They pled for mercy from the God of heaven, and, and, and God answered them. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision, verse 19. And then you get, as it were, the, the content of, of Daniel's prayer about what God can do, how powerful God is, how wise God is, and that God gives wisdom to those who follow him. You see, when, they began, when Daniel entered into his house and spoke to his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Az, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abed, Abednego, as the Babylonians called, called, called them, when that happened and they got down to praying, that was the moment, that was the moment, in, this is the moment in the story where we see clearly that they are not trusting in their own wisdom, rather they are trusting in the wisdom of God. Their hearts are turning to the wisdom of God. I go back to what I said before, the degree to which you practice prayer reveals the depth of your dependence on God. And it reveals that they were truly building their lives, not on the kingdoms of this statue that would crumble, but the kingdom that was on the rock that was cut out, not by human hands. There's so much that we could say about prayer, but just as, in the, as they prayed, God revealed to Daniel the mysteries. In other words, he revealed the, not only the dream, but the interpretation of that dream. I think we need to say this, that, that prayer is actually, is actually a time where God reveals things to us. I know God speaks to us through his word. The primary source of, of revelation that God has given us is his holy word, but there's something about the act of prayer. There's something about the practice of prayer. There's something about praying before an open Bible as you read the Bible and as you pray about what you've read where God opens your eyes and things that are difficult to understand in life that you're struggling with and you pour out your heart to God about those things. God gives you insight about those very things. And even if he doesn't remove the, the problem that you're dealing with at that point, he certainly, in prayer, gives peace to you to live with what perplexes you. And wisdom comes in prayer. And in an age, in a society, in a world that is antagonistic to our faith, antagonistic to our Christ, we need this. We need to pray and to pray together. What Daniel wants us to know Number three, about our calling. I return now to this thing about God taking them into captivity, God, it being God's will. You remember last Sunday we considered just briefly what 
the prophet Jeremiah said, and he wrote a letter to the exiles, and he told them that they were to stay there in the city. They were to put down their roots there. They were to work for the prosperity of the city, the prosperity of the nation that had, that, that, that had destroyed their nation. They were to be a blessing in fulfillment of the, of the goal that God had for Abraham in the first place, that through you, out of you, in you, I will bless all peoples. And here we see Daniel, in a sense, blessing, blessing the wise men by intervening on their behalf. Friends, blessing others involves risk. Blessing others, which is our calling, involves courage. It involves determination. But Daniel's actions and Daniel's words were like a light shining in the dark place. And Daniel spared the lives of the wise men. Let's look at, look at verse 48. Interesting verse. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position, lavished many gifts on him. He made him rule over the entire province of Bab- Bab- Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Do you realize this, that Daniel was actually used by God to actually bless these men and to bless the generations of wise men in Babylon that would follow, and that that blessing was so profound that in Matthew chapter 2, we read about magi who come from the east. Where are they coming from? Ancient Babylon, ancient Persia. And they're coming and they ask the question, where is he who was born king of the Jews? How did they know? How did they know that a king would one day be born in Bethlehem? Because of Daniel's witness and in his blessing to the the Babylonians in the day in which he lived. Final thing I want to say is this. We need one other important point. What Daniel wants us to know about history and the future. History and the future. So we see in this passage this statue that is made out of four different kinds of metals as well as clay. And these metals and the clay represent four successive empires. But I don't think Daniel wants to give us a history lesson of Babylon and Persia and the Macedonians and about Rome. As important as that is. I think Daniel is saying that there's something so much more important for us to see. There are three truths that Daniel wants us to know about the history and about future. And the first is this. In this statue and the way it crumbles to the ground because of this little rock that is cut out not by human hands that smashes it it, and and then the wind that blows it all away, we see first of all the vanity, the vanity of the whole human enterprise of kingdom building. You see, he links these four distinct kingdoms into one statue, into one man. It's as though he's showing the the unity of, 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 of the human race and all the kingdoms of time are all man centered in the form of a man. And what is said here is profound because it is not just a, a vision of the decline and the fall of these empires. But frankly, friends, it is an epitaph over the whole of human history. Because every kingdom in one way or another is blessed by God in the beginning. But it ends up in division and dissolution. 
all worldly authority is transient in nature. When I was younger, I, I, I just believed, I, I guess I got this from my, grand, my grandmother, that, you know, that, that the world's getting better and, 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 and the human race is getting better and, and, and governments are getting better and, and, and we're no longer in the dark ages, the medieval times. We're, we're in this enlightened new, new age in which we live. And of course, friends, that, that, is, that is all a part of, of liberal democratic thinking. Liberal democracies believe this ideology that, that somehow through our political Political process. We're going to create this utopia on earth. But they all go down. They all go down. And you go from gold to silver to bronze to iron to clay. It's inferior. Each one is not as great as the one before it. It all crumbles away and the final kingdom collapses. The vanity of the whole human enterprise of kingdom building is seen here. Secondly, we see here that God is in control of history itself. God told Nebuchadnezzar how history was going to unfold. Right up to the time of Christ, and to be frank, right up until the end of the world. How did God know this, to tell Nebuchadnezzar this through Dan- Daniel? Because, because God foreordained it. God purposed it. God determined it. God is the grand conductor of the orchestra of history. And what God decrees in his wisdom stands. And the third thing is that God's kingdom is ultimately going to supplant all the kingdoms of the world. Look at verse 44. In, those time, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Do you realize that everything Daniel says in verse 44 and 45 actually happened? Friends, these kingdoms don't exist anymore. And even the present superpowers of our world are passing away. It is only he who does the will of God who lives forever, amen? 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, an obscure Palestinian village A child was born, and he grew into manhood. And the first thing he said when he began his ministry was, the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. You see, in Jesus and through Jesus, the kingdom has come. He is the rock that breaks the statue of all of these earthly kingdoms and empires And at Golgotha, that hill outside of Jerusalem, God exalted Jesus in his death. And on the third day by his resurrection, God vindicated Jesus as the true king. And Jesus right now, as he reigns over the world, is subjecting every enemy to himself until the day when sin and death, the world and the devil, and the kingdoms of this world will be no more. He is establishing his kingdom now. His reign is here. The earth one day will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, and God will be all in all. Hallelujah. Now notice how Nebuchadnezzar responds to this in verse 46. It's amazing. 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering and incense be presented to him. Do you realize the significance of what you're seeing here? This king of the whole world, this man of great power, bows down before an exiled Jew. And in the same way, all the kings of the world at the end of this age will bow before a crucified Jew and they will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and he will reign forever. This takes us to just one final takeaway point and that is that Daniel points us to Jesus. Go back to verse 11. Remember I said it's a key verse. Remember what these Babylonian wise men say? It's so revealing, so revealing. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. Next line, they do not live among men. Do you realize what that's saying? What it's actually doing? There's a way in which this is actually pointing to Jesus. Because in Jesus, God came to live among men. The word of God, Christ himself, became flesh. And he lived for a while among us, the Bible says. And in Jesus, we see the glory of God. We see the wisdom of God. Paul tells us that in Jesus are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And when Daniel prayed that he might be given mercy, he was given mercy and his life was spared. When Daniel and his three friends prayed for deliverance, they were delivered. Their stay of execution was lifted. But when Jesus prayed, Father, if it is possible for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. But not my will, but yours be done. He prayed that he might be delivered, and Jesus was not delivered. Rather, he was delivered over to death. And friends, we know that the reason for this is very, very simple. That Jesus was not delivered from the sentence of death because by his death, he will deliver us from death and from the punishment of our sins. That is the good news. And how do we respond to it? Repent and believe the good news. Repent means we need to abandon our love affair with the world. We need to abandon our love affair with all the gods of this world. We need to abandon our infatuation with the world and all of its wisdom and all of our self-inflated importance that we are the center of the universe. And we need to bow before the one true and living God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ and confess that he is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And when we do, we will be saved. Please stand. Oh God, thank you for Daniel. Thank you for this story of this great contest that you had with the gods of the Babylonians so many years ago. We acknowledge as we bring our time of worship to a close this morning that there is no God like you. You are the God of all gods, so-called gods, so-called lords, so-called kings. You are God, God alone, the Lord, the King of the universe. 
And we ask, O oh God, that you will bring our lives into alignment with your will so that every day we will, by our words and by our actions, bless others and continually confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.